So God, would you uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight? Lord, thank you that you're with us this morning, that by your spirit we can, we can have the, the expectation that you will move in our midst. And some song that we sing or the scripture that we read together, the fellowship we have with one another, a prayer that we pray, uh, the communion time, something will move us, will speak to us, will address the particular need that we have uh, and the longing that we have. And so this morning we present ourselves to you and we ask that you'd be about that work uh, in us and through us today. Uh, Because you're a good God and a loving God and a present God. And we celebrate your presence with us in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder if you ever had this experience when you have set out to pray. You, you pray to prayer asking God for something very specific. And then afterwards, you had a kind of a dialogue like this with yourself. You thought, you know what? I bet God's not going to answer that prayer in the way I want him to. He's going to probably just like, you know, touch my heart or something and, you know, let me know that he's there present with me. Um, he's going to remind me through some scripture that uh, his promises are always true, that he's going to provide for me now and in the future. He's, he's probably just going to, you know, help me have a deep internal sense of his presence in my life. Uh, he's probably just going to um, remind me that in him all his promises are yes and amen, that he is enough for me. And he's probably not going to answer this prayer in the way that I want him to answer it because he's going to use this to hold me close to him. He's going to use it to keep me focused on him in a place of dependency and longing for God. And you sort of walk away from that conversation with yourself, hanging your head low, wishing that God would just answer the prayer in the way that you want him to answer. Have you ever had that conversation with yourself? You ever prayed and then afterwards felt like that? Felt like, like God wasn't going to answer it in the way that you'd want it to be answered? Why is it that we cling so tightly? Why is it that the spiritual answers to our prayers are often not enough for us? And why is it that we cling so tightly to the worldly answers that we know ultimately aren't going to satisfy? But those are the ones we want, right? We want God to answer the the prayer with the material things, the tangible things right now. And so often it seems like God moves in a different way. It's like he's, he's working in a different time frame and he's working on a different scale and he's working in a different geography. And so we can see that he's moving and he's answering our prayers, but it just doesn't seem like he's answering it in the way that we would want him to. In our passage today, we're reading about the story of a nation that had a prayer out to God. They had a longing that God would send somebody to them who would be able to overthrow the oppressive Romans who had had their thumb pressed on them for generation after generation. And their prayer was, God, would you send a mighty king, a powerful king, who would overthrow these Roman oppressors. And instead, what they get is a little baby. And this baby's name is Emmanuel, which, come to find out, means God with us, right? So something is happening 
good, but they, have, they end up having a hard time seeing it. Except for Mary and a growing few who begin to realize what God is actually doing. And so in our passage today, Mary becomes kind of our teacher, as she has been for this whole study of what's called the Magnificat. The Magnificat is Mary's song that she sings after realizing that she is pregnant with Jesus Christ, that God is bringing his Messiah through her. And she sings this wonderful song. Open up to it, if you would, in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. We're going to, 56, we're going to kind of focus on verse 53, but I'm going to read a larger chunk of it. The answer that God gives to them is an incredible answer, but it's not the one they want. Just like what happens with us so often. And Mary is the one who's going to help them see it, and Mary's the one who's going to help us see what God is doing in our lives as well this morning. So, in her song, she, she says this, uh, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. And he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And this is our verse for this week. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. We are going to dig into this particular verse, 53. We've been just making our way slowly through this, trying to really sit in this season of Advent with the powerful truths that Mary sings about in this passage. And I want to ask two questions related to this verse. Very simply, who are the rich that Mary's talking about and why are they left empty? That's an important question for us to grapple with. And then secondly, who are the hungry and how are they filled? Who are the hungry and how are they filled? So who are the rich and why are they left empty? And who are the hungry and how are they filled? First, who are the rich and why are they left empty? And you'll notice that in this passage, Mary uses what's called parallelism to communicate her point. It's a, it's a common, it's common in biblical poetry that you would have sort of a constellation of verses that essentially repeat the same idea using different words. And the goal is that the concept, the idea being shared is going to be filled out with the repeated versions using different, different words. So if you go back a verse, you'll see this parallelism. Uh, In verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. So in those two verses, it's, it's sort of backwards the way that they're parallel together, which is called a chiasm. And so the point that, that uh, Mary is making has to do with this great reversal of the wealthy, the mighty, the rich, the ruler types. The haves are going to no longer be the haves and the have-nots will end up being filled. 
Now, just a, a brief thought on the nature of society in that day. You have the rulers who were at the top, the Roman leaders, and then below them you probably had the soldiers who worked tightly under the Roman. These were the Roman soldiers who were keeping uh, an eye on everything that was happening. They, were, had, they had tremendous authority and power. Um, you remember that when Jesus was going to the cross, you know, one of the soldiers could compel somebody else to carry the cross for him, and that person had to do it. That was the kind of regime that the Israelites were living under. And then you had the wealthy, uh, and you had the, the priestly class who were Jews, but they were sort of the highest level of Jews uh, in uh, cooperation with the Romans oftentimes. You had Jews who, who rose in status because they sympathized with the Romans or they worked for the Romans. So the, the, the gospel writer Matthew was a tax collector and he worked for the Romans. And so also Zacchaeus, probably wealthy uh, because they were connected to the power and the, and, the, and the wealth. And then you had the poor. And this was probably the largest group by far, uh, the majority of the population. Uh, and they didn't have any of those things that I just mentioned. They were without. And, and even in some cases, um, food would have been a challenge for them. Uh, and you remember when Jesus, you know, is speaking to the 4,000 and the 5,000 and, and they, don't have, they don't have what they need. And so he provides it for them miraculously. And this is who Mary's referring to. She's referring to the humble, the poor, those who are not the mighty, those who are not the rich ruler types. Uh, and so uh, we, when we translate this passage to apply it into our context, we need to do some careful thinking. Uh, it gets a little tricky, right? Because if we consider ourselves in relation to the rest of the world, we probably would have to say that generally speaking, we are not in the category of the have-nots. We are in the category of the haves. And so maybe we could sit in that for a moment and let this text speak to us in what I think are some prophetic ways for us, some ways to us to, for, for us to be careful. I mean, could this mean that we're going to be sent away empty? Is that what, is that what Mary uh, seems to be saying here? That we, those who are in the larger scheme of things, and, and I'll get to our hunger and our poverty and our brokenness, but let's just sit with this for a second. Could this mean that we're going to be sent away empty? Well, let's dig a little deeper uh, into this question. There are indications that some haves, people who have, right, um, did follow Jesus and were welcomed in. And so if we look through the New Testament, we'll see people like Nicodemus, who was of that priestly class and also probably very wealthy who came to Jesus and we discover at the end that his seeming pursuit of Jesus was true and genuine and faithful. And we have a, a man like Joseph of Arimathea who offered his tomb for the burial of Jesus and he would have been a have then to have his own tomb like that that was a new fresh one and to be able to offer it to Jesus, he was among those who had much. And then throughout the rest of the New Testament, we have uh, evidence of different other people who were among what you would call the haves. Business women, Lydia, for example, and Phoebe, and Joanna, who was part of the household of Herod. And she had come 
seemingly to faith in God through Jesus Christ. Uh, And so you've got haves in the New Testament who do walk with God. But then you've got statements like this, even in this gospel, the gospel of Luke, where Jesus famously warns in Luke 18 that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to, the, to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel. Now imagine that, right? Try to wrap your brain around that. That's a strong statement about the impact of wealth on a person's ability to come into proximity with the living God. And then you have stories like the rich man and Lazarus, uh, where, you know, you have this rich man who's calling out from, from Hades to try and, and warn uh, his family. And, 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 and there's a man hungry sitting at the door who ends up finding God. And over and over again, in fact, this is one of the things in the teaching of Jesus that Luke emphasizes, is that there's this great reversal. That the haves become the have-nots and the have-nots become the haves in the kingdom of God. And as always, right, it's, if you ask the question, well, what's going on here? The answer is that it's about the heart. It's about where the person's heart is. That's the key issue that's at stake here. And really, this is the first word for us. So as as we come to this text, verse 53, and we're trying to apply it to our own lives and make sense out of it and understand it, I think this is the first word for us. So this is the application part of that, that, this side of verse 53. Um, Given our condition and our context, the fact that we we probably live at at one of the most, uh, in in, in the most abundant countries certainly that there ever has been. Um, We have many of our needs taken care of. We have great abundance. We are are in relationship to the world and to history, a people of great wealth. Here's the message for us. Those who have much need to take care that their abundance does not obscure their need for God. Those who have much need to take care that their abundance does not obscure their need for God. It's not impossible. All All things are possible with God, so I guess even a camel through the eye of a needle, it's not impossible, but there is is a difficulty when there is much to obscure our vision of God and our sense of need for God. And, you know, it's tempting to skip over this message with us and to say, well, there are people who are a lot more wealthy than we are. We, we know who they are. We can look at the news. We can look at the media and see who they are. It's tempting to skip over this message and not apply it to ourselves. But in fact, we miss a blessing when we do that. We miss the blessing that we need to be careful that the abundance of our own lives, even though there are those who have more, we have Tremendous amount, even though we need to be careful that the abundance of our lives doesn't obscure our vision of God, our view of God. This is a spiritual principle. Having a lot and seeing your need for God is as likely as a camel going through the eye of a needle. So let's, let's think about applying that to our lives uh, here in this season, in the season that's coming. One of the things that I've got two examples here of how, uh, of the blinding effects of wealth. Um, one, is, one is more personal and then one's more collective kind of for us as a church. Um, 
You've heard me talk about fasting if you've been a part of this community. It's a, it's a, it's a spiritual discipline that I embrace and have embraced for uh, a long time, uh, well over a decade now. Um, and I'm not somebody who came to fasting, you know, just because I was naturally good at it. I mean, if you ask my family, they will tell you that, you know, dad without missing a meal is just a bad situation uh, because, you know, uh, it, it doesn't go well. Uh, and so I had to be sort of, you know, uh, uh, arm twisted into fasting. I was part of a pastor's group uh, in Oakland, and this was, this was way back when Oakland had the highest murder rate of any city in the United States. And this group of about 40, 50 pastors, we all covenanted together to fast during the month of February, every day during, uh, until dinner. Um, and... Uh, what was incredible is that during that season, uh, nobody was killed in Oakland in the month of February. And there had been multiple murders like per week. Um, it, actually, I think it was 100, so it'd be like three, it was like three a day, it was like three a week were taking place. And during that month of February, you know, God worked powerfully to withhold, you know, the tide of violence that had been racking Oakland. Um, and not only did he work in that sort of collective communal way, he also worked in my own life personally. I had never stretched myself like this. And growing up here in the United States, you know, uh, always having everything, always having food, always having, and you know, more and more having everything right now, you know, um, this was a new thing for me, and to have to wait on the Lord and to pause. It was like it was like the curtain opened up, and I could see the Lord in a new way, because uh, the the abundance that had been clouding my view was was parted, and I could see what God was doing, and and, and that shaped. That shaped from that time on the way I approached this discipline, and I, I began to make a part of my life. and And now, you know, uh, I, I'm these days uh, looking at two days of fasting, oftentimes. Although I try not to make it a rule, um, because uh, Jesus has has words about that. I, I invite the Lord to invite me into fasting on each day that I do it. We live in a time where there is an unprecedented abundance. And this leaves us not really seeing how we need God. And with the advent of, you know, mobile phones and the internet, it's almost like, you know, all of that has been put on steroids. We never have to wait. We never have to wonder. We never have to sit in discomfort. You know, we can always be distracted, you know. And it just sort of keeps us from seeing God. We have tremendous abundance and not to mention, you know, food as a sign of that. Um, most of us don't have that experience. Some of us may of going hungry like, like the people of Mary's day would have had. Something about that that causes you to need God in a whole new way. And so here's what I want to do this morning by way of applying this text. Um, I want to invite you to join me in the month of January to fast as an experiment, and just to see what God will do in your own life in a spiritual way. I want to invite you to join me. Uh, I typically, Jody and I fast on Monday for our kids, and then on Wednesday, I often will fast for the church. So join me on one of those days. Uh, 
for the month of January to fast and just see what God will do as you give him that time. Um, and we can talk more about what fasting looks like. Actually, just I'll say this. For me, it just means I don't eat until, this is not even that significant. I just don't eat until uh, a late dinner, like seven o'clock. So I get up in the morning, I don't eat. I drink water, I have coffee, but I don't drink, I don't eat until seven or something like that. So I want to invite you, in, as we think about, we're going to have a concert of prayer on January 8th, which I'm excited about, been working on it this week. And we want to start off 2023 with a deep sense of prayer. And we'll have that concert of prayer on Sunday morning. We'll all be together in one service. And then bouncing out of that, I'm hoping that many of you will join me in fasting for the month of January once a week, um, just for the church for any strongholds in your life that need to be broken through, um, for any people that you are heavy on your heart that you want to be praying for. So that will be a a plan for us in January is to be fasting like that together um, so that the impact of wealth can be, can be set aside and we can see God together. Now I want, my second point is about the church. And I'm thinking about the church, our church in particular, but I'm thinking about the larger church in America as well. Uh, the little his, a little history here about the church in America. You know, from the, from the 70s to about 2010, what was the prevailing mindset with church has been often called the church growth movement. And the idea with there was to get as many people in the room as you possibly could, have church be as entertaining as it possibly could be, and then have people give as much as they could. And it became this sort of perpetual cycle of the church sort of feeling wealthy and full and happy uh, and feeling good about itself. And the cost of that was the kind of life-on-life discipleship that Jesus shows in the New Testament and calls us into was set aside for love of making things bigger and more wonderful and more marvelous and more, more streamlined and more seamless and more programmatic. And we're seeing the impact of that mindset in the church as the church in the U.S. continues to decline. In other words, if you don't make disciples, if you focus on being just big and, and wealthy, then you've missed what God is wanting to do. And so, you know, I have the blessing of being able to travel and see and hear conversations of churches all around the country. And one of the beautiful things that's happening right now is there is a recapturing of the importance of life-on-life discipleship in the church context. That if we re-embrace the way Jesus lived with his disciples, then we're gonna see something new and dramatic take place in our churches because people will actually be raised up and will lose the sense of infatuation with the programmatic, the large, you know, the fancy. It's really easy to come to church in that kind of a setting and just be a consumer. And that's what we've been experiencing. And so um, when we move into this next season in 2023, one of the things that I'm really excited about is to set aside that kind of, you know, church growth, wealth mentality and dig more deeply into what the scriptures teach us about life on life discipleship. 
Um, this is why uh, in the last season, um, and, and thanks to many people who've made this possible, I've been able to pivot some of my time and do a Gospel Academy cohort where every Thursday night we've got, you know, uh, 11 people coming who we're doing a nine-month process of intensive discipleship, you know, looking at theology and uh, the scriptures and, and living in community and all this because this is what we need to be doing as a church. And it's not just that. We've got Alpha. Alpha is life-on-life discipleship. It's you linking arms with somebody and bringing them to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somebody who maybe hasn't had a chance, and there's a lot of people in this area where we live who haven't had a chance to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when you, when you step out and invite somebody like that to come to one of our Alpha gatherings, you know, I'm telling you, Alpha is one of my favorite things to do because you get to see the wheels turn in people's mind and they begin to understand who Jesus is. And we've just seen tremendous, wonderful things happening through that. Of course, home groups play a role on this life-on-life discipleship. When you're in a home group, you know, it's not just about that meeting that happens on one night of the week. It's about the discipleship that flows from that. And one of the ways that we often talk about it, you know, this is the mindset shift we all need to have is, you know, we need somebody to pour into us and we need to be pouring into somebody else. Um, We had somebody come and guest speaker one time who called that, you know, a hand back and a hand forward. You got to have a hand back and a hand forward. And that's what we're looking for as a church. That's what we're, we're wanting to move into more fully as a church, that every single one of us has a hand back and has a hand forward. And we can make all these excuses and say, well, you know, I'm not worthy. My life is not worth emulating. Well, guess what? None of us can say, I've got it all figured out. We all are a work in progress. And so having a hand back and having a hand forward, it's just the way it's done. This is how Jesus taught us to do church. And the wealth and the abundance of the American church has and many times kept us from doing what we're supposed to do, from seeing what God wants to do in our community. So we want to get back to that. We want to get back to that in 2023. And so that's my invitation to you is is to think about having a hand back and having a hand forward. Who has God placed in your life that you can pull along towards Christ? And who are you reaching out to who's a mentor type to you? Somebody who can carry you to the next stage, help get you to the next stage of your discipleship process. If we do that, if we're all moving along that process, I'm just, I'm inspired to see what God's gonna do. This is what it means to be a church of people who are becoming ambassadors for Christ. All right, so that's the message for us, um, uh, the first part of it. Let's, let's go on to this idea of the hungry, though. Who are the hungry, and how are they filled? And if you really want to understand this text, you have to see it through the lens of the hungry. That's, that's what Mary is showing us. You've got to see this through the lens of the hungry. This is who the passage is about. It's about people who are hungry, and then find themselves to be filled. This is the hopeful message of the passage. And the hungry, as we've talked about already, comparing it to the wealthy, the hungry are us and they're not us. To the extent that we've not experienced the kind of oppression that Mary experienced, they're not us, right? We don't live under an oppressive regime like Mary lived under. So there are elements of this that are not us. 
um, they had to endure constant threat from, you know, uh, from soldiers and others who could really command them to do anything. I mentioned Joseph of Arimathea, or Simon of Cyrene, who had to carry the cross of Jesus, you know, uh, for him, and he was commanded to do so by the soldiers. You wonder how many times that kind of thing was happening in the society. When they would leave their house, they had to wonder, what's the soldier going to command me to do? They lived in a kind of an oppressive state, and we have a, we have a hard time c- connecting with that because we haven't experienced that. And yet, at the same time, there, because we're such a diverse con- congregation with people from all over the world, there are people in our congregation who have experienced that. I've had conversations with some of you who have shared what it was like to live in the nation where you came from and the kinds of things that you had to endure in that place. And so there are those among us who understand what it's like to be Mary in that sense. And then there's also the unique experiences of our own lives. Um, Some of us uh, have a minority experience, a journey, journey in this country where we've experienced that kind or a kind of oppression and struggle and difficulty. We have our own family of origin circumstances that shape who we are and our experience of being hungry for more. We have fathers who didn't father us. We have mothers who didn't mother us in the way that we, the way that we would want. And so we know we can relate to the hungry. And then further, one of the most powerful points of the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus is that our deepest poverty is not actually physical in the end, but it is spiritual. Just like the Romans were oppressed by the pe- oppressed the people of Israel, um, we are oppressed. Uh, we said this a couple of weeks ago by our enslavement to sin. We all know about slavery because of the reality of sin. And let me just say, those of you who maybe are here this morning and you're exploring what does it mean to be a Christian? What, why do people want to draw near to Christ? It's, it, it's right centered on this idea of enslavement to sin. Uh, when, when you come into this place, you probably come with some sense of hope that you could be different, that you could be changed because you've seen in your life that things aren't going the way that you would want them to. To go. You've seen how you cause harm to others. That's sin. And the reason for Jesus is to address and to break us free from that kind of slavery. So you're just in the right place. You're a hungry person. Just like we're all hungry. That's the bottom line is we are all hungry. So yes, we got to be careful of the elements of wealth that characterize our lives. But at the end of the day, we are all hungry. And we all want to be filled in a satisfying and lasting way. And we wonder what that really looks like. And in our search for filling our lives, uh, we eat up all kinds of things. If you've been around, you probably have seen this list, which I'm going to put up here now. The ways that we try to fill ourselves with approval and comfort and control. We eat power and we eat a sense of belonging and intimacy and, and we find, try to find significance on social media and through our careers and our grades. And, and we look for alternate means of transcendence through, you know, different types of spirituality or, or drugs or the occult. We, we're, trying to, we're trying to fill our hunger with something that will satisfy some huge percentage of the frantic and frenetic expenditure of energy in our world is the result of us trying to find satisfaction by eating these things on this list. This is what makes the world go round in a sense. People trying 
to fill that hunger. And in Mary's world, uh, one version of that would have been the hope for the Messiah who would come and overthrow the Romans. That's what the Israelites wanted. And that would be their satisfaction that this oppression that was upon them would be gone. That's what they thought it would look like to be filled. But then Jesus comes and he's not that. He's a baby first and then he's a carpenter and then he's a rabbi and then he's arrested and then he's crucified. The prayer that they prayed was being answered in a way they didn't expect. It was a baby instead of a powerful king. God doesn't answer them in the way they want him to. His answer feels subtle and invisible and spiritual. Some said, Lord, I'm still hungry. That's why they, they wanted to crucify him. Because they thought they were still, that he wasn't enough. He was, they were still hungry. So what's going on here? What's going on is that we have the fulfillment and the Israelites have the fulfillment uh, of their prayer in infant form, in the form of the baby. Their fulfillment is in infant form still. They don't realize what it actually is. Or to, to use a different uh, analogy, the fulfillment is awaiting its second coming. Jesus' second coming. In his first coming, he's accomplishing something significant in particular. But he will bring the rest in his second coming. And often the now part of the blessing, when we pray to God and we ask him to meet us in our need and our hunger, the now part of his response is often invisible like that and very spiritual. That's just the way it is to live in this world at this time in this season. That the now part of the answer to our prayer is often hidden. That's how it was for Mary. The baby Jesus was hidden within her, had not yet entered into his full glory as a powerful king, and still hasn't in the sense that we're waiting for Jesus to return and establish his kingdom on earth. We have the answer, but it's invisible, not in the form yet that we would most hope for. But here's what I want to say to you this morning, because I know many of you prayed prayers and you have felt like God's answers have been less than what you hoped for. And I want to encourage you this morning to be like Mary, not to look down on the invisible answers to prayer. Don't look down on the invisible and subtle answers to prayer. These spiritual answers, they do meet your deepest need. This is why Mary, who's carrying an invisible hope, can sing her amazing song of praise. God has met her in her need. The hungry are filled with good things. The baby hasn't been born yet. The baby hasn't grown up yet. The baby hasn't come back, hasn't died for the sins of the world yet. The baby hasn't come back and established his kingdom yet. But still she sings in praise her Magnificat. So here's the point. Part of living in faith is singing when the things you long for are only partially fulfilled. 
That's what it means to learn from Mary to live in faith. Part of living in faith is singing when the things you long for are only partially fulfilled because you have seen the Lord and in faith you know the rest is coming. And that's what the Lord is inviting us into this Advent season. You are pregnant with the promises of God. And he's inviting you to start singing now in anticipation of the complete fulfillment. He's meeting you in your deepest need. You are pregnant with the promises of God. You know, one of the most challenging seasons of my life has been the season of parenting adult children, which we're very much in the middle of right now. We have four kids, 25 to 19. And they are wandering to and fro at times. They make decisions that you didn't think they would make and not the decisions that you would make. And sometimes they even do things that are harmful and you're just watching from afar and you're praying and you're asking and sometimes it just feels like the answers aren't what you want or what you would expect. And this has been a long season for us several years because of the, the gap of our kids and there have been moments of darkness and struggle and strain. Not too long ago, I had to excuse myself from worship because I needed to go uh, serve my daughter who was in a difficult situation, right? And these have been, these have been some of the hardest moments. Uh, and you ask the question, well, would I change any of it? And the answer is, yeah, I actually would. There are things I would change in what's happened over the last years. But you ask another question, has this hunger that it's caused produced in me and driven me to a deeper dependency on the Lord than I had previously? And the answer is absolutely yes. Abs My life has been radically changed in this season because of the way that God has continuously proven himself to be faithful in the midst of what sometimes feel like the darkest struggles. That's what it means to be filled in your hunger. The, ultimately, what fills us most is the presence of God. What's going to be most filling about heaven is that we will be in the presence of God. And so, when we're looking to fill our hungers, those, that's the fulfillment that we ultimately need. And and what Mary teaches us is that when God meets you in that way, when he answers the prayer in the way that you didn't think he would answer it, but he answers it in his own way, and it's kind of invisible, and it's, 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 it's kind of spiritual more in a way that you, you wished it would be more material. When he answers your prayer in that way, start singing. Start the process of singing. She sings what's called the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. And part of the, the message of Advent for you and for me is that every single one of us has a Magnificat to sing. Every single one of us has a Magnificat to sing. And so God, we come before you this morning and we've got all kinds of requests that are on our hearts and our minds during this season. Things that we would love for you to change in our lives or in the lives of the people we love. Things that you would love to, we would love for you to, to answer right now. 
But there's something you're doing that's greater and more wonderful often. And that is you're drawing close and you're drawing us close to yourself. All the struggles and the sufferings of this life are intended to bring us into closer relationship with you. And so we want to say to you this morning that you are good and that you are faithful. And just like, like Mary was pregnant with this incredible promise, we are pregnant with all of your promises which are yes and amen in Christ this morning. And so we can sing. We can sing your praises. And that's what we're going to do in a moment. But we want to do it not just in this moment. We want to do it throughout this week as we go towards, you know, Christmas Sunday and our Christmas Eve service. We want to sing your praises like Mary. Lord, magnify yourself in our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.